Welcome to the next in a series of Who's Who in Academic Emergency Medicine podcast, brought to you by SAM Rams. Welcome to another episode of the Who's Who in Academic Emergency Medicine podcast. This is in collaboration between SAM Rams and SAM's Faculty Development Committee. My name is Hamsa Ajaz. I'm a second year resident at the University of Cincinnati. And today, our guest is Dr. L.A. Alvarez. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Hamza. Thanks, everybody. So, Dr. Alvarez, for those of you who don't know him, he is an assistant clinical professor of emergency medicine and assistant program director at Stanford. He also focuses on the interdependence of residency well-being with performance improvement on patient experience, diversity, equity and inclusion, and medical education. Dr. Alvarez serves as the co-chair of the Stanford WellMD's Physician Wellness Forum, and he also co-chairs the largest diversity mentoring initiative in emergency medicine through ASAP and EMRA and the Cord Wellness Leadership Mini Fellowship. So let's start at the beginning, Dr. Alvarez. You're clearly right. very interested within the realm of emergency medicine, but also wellness and diversity and inclusion. But where did your passions for emergency medicine first rise? So for me, I think I can think back of when I was growing up, I'd play war games with my brother and my cousin, and I always ended up that kid with no specific roles. Somebody would always pick to be the military and somebody would pick to be the bad guy. And so I think I created a role for myself that I wanted to be the medic for both of them. And somehow over the years, it kind of stuck. My grandfather would call for me to check his blood pressure and I had no idea how to do this. But like, it was more of like hearing it often that, oh, there's a doctor in the house that solidify this path for me. I'm the first physician in my family. And so it's a big deal actually starting from that little story to what I am now and what I've done. It's incredible. Yeah. A lot of these stories you hear about where the origin story, as you may call it, you know, yes. it's really interesting to hear all the different faculty who are involved in academic emergency medicine. So I really appreciate you sharing yours. And now you've come quite a far away from being that medic, as you call it. You're a well-known leader within emergency medicine. You speak nationally and internationally on diversity and inclusion, as well as just physician wellness. How do you define these terms? These are obviously terms that are becoming more and more popular and more and more evident within the field of medicine. But how would you define them? And when did you first become interested in these? Thanks for that question. So for me, wellness or well-being, I think specifically, is I use a definition that Stanford uses as it relates to professional fulfillment. So it involves efficiency of practice, the culture of wellness, and also personal resilience. I think wellness in and of itself can be misconstrued sometimes as, oh, it's just the easy way out or making sure that somebody's not burnt out. Actually, I don't think that wellness is the opposite of burnout, and they can go hand in hand. My work on diversity, equity, and inclusion started with understanding that, again, I'm a first-generation physician. I wouldn't have gotten here had it not been for mentorship that I've gotten along the way. And also understanding that in my interactions with different physicians, either within emergency medicine or outside, and other colleagues like the nursing team and all the other members of our work, microaggressions come into play, how we treat each other come into play, which also actually affects well-being. And so for me, that's how it initially started. Me just understanding like why certain people would act the same way and how it's impacting me, how it's impacting how I care for my patients. And the more I looked into it, how it's impacting longevity of our job, how happy we are with our job and our performance with our work. My previous hat prior to medical education was that I was the assistant medical director at a busy county hospital. And so my job was to focus on making things better, faster, and more efficient. 
And in that work, I actually realized that I was the driver of burnout for many people. And only when I realized that, I started really looking into are there better ways of making things better, faster, more efficient that is also compassionate to the physicians, to the medical students, to the residents? So moving to Stanford as an APD, I had the opportunity to work with WellMD. And as you know, we have the first chief wellness officer. And understanding that medical students, for instance, the data on medical students, I'm not sure if you know that when medical students start med school, they are at least half less likely to be burnt out compared to the general public. And then something happens that by the time that they graduate medical school, they're twice as likely to be burnt out than the general population. So something happens in training that causes burnout. And I think for me, if there's a way to design a system that could address that, I think it will make our work much better. We'll be happier with our work. And also we'll have more impact, positive impact towards our patients. And along those work, I've realized that if you're underrepresented in medicine, you're really significantly affected by these systemic racism that happens, the, the microaggressions that happens. And before I knew the terms like imposter syndrome, I thought it was just all me. And then over the years, I'm realizing that, huh, it's actually because number one, imposter syndrome is common and almost all of us, if not all of us have imposter syndrome. So that was important for me to understand and now normalize. And then understanding that imposter syndrome microaggressions actually come in hand. And if you work in a place where you always feel threatened or you're not safe or you don't belong, then it can aggravate this sense that you don't belong or that you feel like an imposter in that place. And that's a perfect lead into one of the other questions that I had. And I saw that you've recently authored an article titled Optimizing Wellness in Academic Emergency Medicine. And I, it's interesting that you mentioned wellness and burnout can go hand in hand. And this article was published in the Journal of Wellness, but I want to hear from you as one of the authors on this reputable article and talk about what do you think were some of the takeaway points that you wanted the readers to walk away with? So I think to start off, emergency medicine, as you know, as you're doing your trauma rotation right now, is the environment is called the VUCA environment. So it's full of volatility, uncertainty. There's a lot of complexity in our work and our interventions can be ambiguous. We don't really know sometimes if it works or not, right? And so this leads to questioning ourselves whether did I do the right thing or did I not, which then leads to shame in medicine. Burnout emergency medicine is high. Emergency physicians have one of the highest burnout rates in all of medicine. And it's also important to recognize that physicians and emergency physicians are already resilient people. And so what we wanted to impart in the article that we wrote through the SAEM Wellness Committee is that there are key things that sets academic emergency physicians unique compared to the community. So for instance, in working in an academic community, you work with trainees. And so seeing them develop into our specialty is inspiring. And that could be a positive thing. Working in an academic environment also, you're usually in a tertiary environment where you have more access to subspecialty as opposed to being in an austere environment. I'm a nocturnist, so I understand what it feels like to work with like bare minimum resources, but it's nothing compared to work in like a very busy county hospital versus a hospital in the middle of nowhere, right? And I've worked in those rural hospitals where you really have to like call people from all over and transfer people a lot. So I think there's a key difference there for the academic environment. There's also 
key things that lead to specific burnout for physicians in the academic emergency medicine environment. So those are being academic productivity, getting grants, publications, getting good evaluations in your work, getting promoted, while at the same time taking care of your patients. And all the same, all of these places, again, medical errors happen, right? And how we manage medical errors and that shame in medicine can significantly impact how we perceive our work and our value in our work. My medical director here at Stanford, Dr. Lale Garbagian, she really is the leader in going away from the naming, the blaming, the shaming of an individual when you have bad outcomes, for instance. And so even the language in our group, we call it TRC or case review committee, as opposed to peer review. Just by shifting that language is very important for you to understand that, yes, we know that bad things happen, but we have to understand also how the system is designed to have led to that medical harm and understanding what systems way that we can improve is also beneficial. In the article, we highlighted other things to focus on, like reimbursement gap between community practice versus how we incentivize work in academic practice, like teaching or academic value units has been proposed. And there's also a bigger conversation on work-life integration. As you know, work-life balance is really not as tenable when you're saying like, if I have to work, then my life suffers. But if I prioritize my life, then work happens. The opposite is also there's problems with just saying work-life integration is the right thing. If you don't know where to create boundaries, you're going to have like Zoom meetings, like from 6 a.m. Like I live in the West Coast. And so my colleagues in the East Coast would be like, it's 9 a.m. there. It's 6 a.m. for me. I'm not going to wake up every single day to have a meeting to include everybody at that time. And so signaling like, you know, I'm going to drop my boundaries. I can only meet at 7 a.m. on this date or Tuesdays and Wednesdays are academic days for me. I will put as many meetings as I can on Tuesdays. And those days are not going to be as fun or going to be busy. And yet I also have control for the rest of my calendar. I think those are ways of like creating boundaries that we were hoping to impart in that article. And I think that the one-liner would be that there's no one-size-fits-all solution to problems in academic emergency medicine. So you have to really focus on the individual and also each of the departments, because then they can really focus on improving the well-being of their physicians in their group. Thank you so much for that. For those of you who have not yet heard or listened to this article or read this article, please make sure you do. It's actually very interesting, as you have astutely pointed out, some of those unique challenges that we face within the house of academic emergency medicine. When I first came across this, I wasn't aware of some of them. So I really appreciate you and the rest of the committee highlighting a lot of these issues and also some of the points and tricks essentially to kind of get around it and make your productivity and wellness more appreciated. Now, transitioning to another point that you've also alluded to earlier about diversity and as one of your personal passions, it's becoming more and more relevant just how much that work needs to be done still within the field of medicine overall. But from a residency perspective or overall departmental perspective, from a department of residency who's trying to increase their diversity and the equity and the inclusion of diverse applicants, how would you advise those people who are looking to make those decisions? And why would you tell them that it's important or how would you portray their importance of this? I think it's a great question. And I think we have to move away from looking at diversity simply as an end to itself, essentially tokenism, just like by increasing numbers. Also, I think the next step is like diversity as an addition to the educational value by increasing that cognitive or the educational benefits. I think that in and of itself is good. 
However, we can expand that to really thinking that diversity is actually the vehicle to excellence. And I borrowed that from Andrew Nibe for his work on Diversity 3.0. And so really, we think of diversity to really enhance the environment for innovation and also for having constructive conflict sometimes, uh, for having different views on how to do things versus we've been doing it for decades like this, and we should just keep on doing this way. There's not a lot of innovation and improvement in that. So the next question that you have, that's a big question. The question is, how do you improve diversity in your group? I think there's several areas that you can definitely work on. It has to come from leadership. You have to have leadership support, which means that there's also going to be some sort of modeling with the idea of welcoming diversity. It's okay to also acknowledge that people are uncomfortable with having this discussion. I am proud to work in a place where we have more women leaders in our departments. And at the same time, our chair is very vulnerable and shares like, you know what? I did not want this to happen, or I did not intend for this to happen. And so when you see leaders like that, acknowledging that they're also humans, that they're also kind of making decisions that may not always turn out well, you learn from that. I think that's how we should model efforts on diversity, right? Like being able to understand that we're trying different things here. Let's see which one sticks. And another thing that's important is tracking that, tracking any initiatives that you're doing. It's okay to start like, oh, I'm going to increase the number of interviews, X, Y, Z, or doing provide like scholarships in our program for them to rotate here. Those are great interventions. But if you're not tracking how much impact you have, I think it's a missed opportunity also from an academic productivity perspective. I'm also realizing like with my work on DEI that many of our efforts sometimes can feel like we've not done a great job when we look at our match list. It's like, ah, we didn't really match as much underrepresented medicine. I'm reframing that, I think, with the understanding that over the years, what I've found is that there are people that I've met throughout the recruitment process. I'm talking specifically for residency here, but I do work in the undergraduate medical education, also in in medical school and also like for faculty development and recruitment. But for residency, what I've seen is that these residents, amazing residents now, or even faculty now, are all over the country and I've worked with them. I've interfaced with them. And so It's a lot easier for me to reach out to them, to collaborate, to reach out to them, to recruit them, to work at our institution. And so that maybe like one summer of mentorship program that we did can have long lasting impact down the road that I may not see just yet. I have mentees right now that are doing fantastic and other residency programs that I wish would have come to our programs. And I know that come like fellowship application or come like faculty application, if they want to come to us. I would gladly vouch for them for all the work that they've done. And so I think that's important to understand as well. And I think another thing that's very important with DEI efforts, and this is very closely related to physician well-being, is the idea of inclusion. You have to find ways to really make somebody feel that they belong. And being underrepresented in medicine can be othering as an experience. Again, as a first-generation physician, I always felt like I had to prove myself to every single one that I work with and understanding that and putting myself in that position, I can kind of create an environment where it's okay to feel that way. And it's okay to also provide support and help and not really just help, but really just guide those, especially the students who are underrepresented in medicine as they thrive in your environment. Again, my response is all over the place because I think there's no one solution to this, but I think that. You have to do it like from multiple levels and you have to get buy-in from leadership. 
No, I agree. I appreciate everything you've said. And it's not all over the place at all. It's just that this issue, unfortunately, has so many different facets to it that it's not just a one solution. There's so many different layers that you have to essentially tackle to start making that impact that we're hopefully trying to as a specialty and within the overall house of medicine as well. I want to take a little bit of a step back and transition more so to a little bit more about something else you've been working on as well in regards to, I read an article that you've written as well called Rough Day, Be Grateful. At first, when you look at it, you might be confused or just by the heading. Obviously, it's got that hook, you know, when you read that article title. But I think when I came across this and I read it, I felt it was very relevant to our current COVID pandemic. So for those listeners who haven't actually gotten a chance to read this article, which I would recommend that you do, can you tell us more about the message behind this and give us some advice for getting through that next busy shift or my next trauma shift, for example? Yeah. Thanks for calling me out on that. The title was clearly meant to grab attention. And I have learned a lot since writing that. I'm really grateful for working with Patty DeVries here at Stanford LMD and really learning more about the science of gratitude. And so in brief, what I've learned is that gratitude has a lot of benefits in positive psychology and how we view things. So the idea is if you even practice the three good things, so celebrating or thinking or writing three things that you're grateful for each day, by day four, day five, that practice is more likely to last. And if you do that for two weeks, the benefit lasts up to six months. And the benefit that they've shown has been compared to even better than taking an antidepressant, right? So it's definitely something that's positive. There's also the idea of the three to one ratio. So Barbara Fredrickson did the work on this, that you need three positive things in order to overcome one negative events. And so the idea of being grateful when you're having a rough day really comes to my experience when I do shifts and I leave the place and I'm like really depleted and either there's a bad outcome or a bad interaction or not something that I'm super proud of. And what I do in order to kind of bounce back from that is I send thank you letters. And it has to be genuine. At least the science supports that if you're writing thank you letters, you have to be genuine about it in order to really benefit. So I would write down a thank you. So I'll write kudos. I do a ton of kudos like for the environmental staff or the nurse, the residents that we have, like we have Save the Months, like many of these interventions that also tie in with well-being, right? But it's actually, how do I say this? It's selfish, right? I'm writing the thank you letter because I know it's going to make me feel good afterwards. And I also know that once those people receive that thank you letter, they're going to be happy. They're going to be grateful that I just gave them something positive because they also had a rough day. And so oftentimes, whether they acknowledge me or not, I know that as a receiver, just like me, they're going to feel good. And this cycle of positivity, I think, creates this culture of wellness that I was referring to earlier. The not so good thing about that title is that it can be gaslighting. So when you're having a bad day, it's probably not a good idea for some random person to say, ah, be grateful. And that is very true. And so my point of using rough day, be grateful is that when you're having a rough day, especially when you're like in the moment, really upset, imagine you're in your trauma service later on and you're in a resuscitation and it's just been rough, right? And somebody is either screaming at you or telling you to do something that you don't agree with. And your initial reaction is either to yell back or scream or say something not nice, which you will regret later on. And so in that moment, you are in this thing called hyperactivated states. If you know that you're hyperactivated already, mounting to that same level and the natural response is to like give that energy back. If you do that, 
most likely you're not going to be happy with that end result. Even if you win the argument, you're going to regret parts of that. And so knowing that, there's actually a way to step back and realize, oof, I'm really getting worked up here. And that oof, I'm getting really worked up here. There's a few things that you can do. And for me, one of the things that I've learned is to use that gratitude mantra that Renee Brown talks about. I'm grateful for the nice weather outside. I'm grateful for this opportunity to be here right now. I'm grateful for the lunch that I just had, right? Because it takes on this idea that you really cannot multitask. And so if your train of thought is being responsive to that anger that's being directed to you, you can quickly shift that back to something positive. Again, that three to one ratio. And hopefully you can then calm down quickly and realize that, you know what, this is not worth it. Like probably not productive right now for me to respond and then address that later on. What is important, and I didn't really focus in that paper, is the immediate effects, which is the immediate effects we covered, which is you can quickly switch out of that hyperactivated state. But the most important thing afterwards is to take care of yourself. And that's where self-compassion comes in. That's when you have to really find ways to like process things, that solitude that you need to kind of debrief with yourself. Why was Sly so worked up? Was it because they were questioning my management? Was it because I actually felt I was wrong and I felt like I had to defend myself? Was it because the patient did not do so well and I'm blaming myself with that? All of these things I think need to be processed. And as emergency physicians, we are so good with blocking all those. We're so good with compartmentalizing because we need to move on to the next patients. And what I'm suggesting here is to find moments to also acknowledge this and being kind to ourselves. It's so true that you're mentioning here. Everyone's had this experience, whether you're a resident, medical student, faculty of any level. Everyone's had visceral emotions to a, either a poor resuscitation or something, some outcome or something is said that is or done that they don't agree with that evokes a very strong response. And it's honestly very cathartic to give your true response to have that rebuttal, essentially. That's the easy way to go about that circumstance. But as you had probably mentioned, it's not going to give you lasting happiness. But the thing is, that is the easier option that you have. It's just so much more difficult to channel that into something that's positive or gratitude. So I feel like as a someone who's in training for medical students who are going to be going through this experience for the next few years, it's difficult. And going through at the end of a 12-hour shift or the end of a call shift or at the end of an eight-hour shift, when you get closer to the end of those lasting hours, it's those responses or those roadblocks we've built become much more difficult to not just give your natural response. How would you recommend combating that internal visceral response you additionally would ah. want to have and channel it towards a little bit more something positive? So there's this thing called residue that's the founder of Mission Critical Teams Institute to have coined uh, Preston Klein. And what he's referring to is that in any high-performance teams like emergency physicians or surgeons or the military or NASA or the sports team, it started actually from acting. So one of the actors said that whenever they take on different roles, at the end of their movie, for instance, they take on a piece of that character that they have, and that leaves a residue in them. And you're like, how is this relevant to emergency medicine? Each of the experiences that we have when we take care of patients is a traumatic event. We as physicians, emergency physicians, experience this thing called vicarious trauma, and they leave a residue with us. Your question is, how do we then manage this residue in the moment? 
And also beyond that immediate interaction, I think both are important, but also both are very separate. So I gave an example of managing it in the moment. So when you're having a rough day or you're ending a shift and it's really a bad day, finding connections, reaching out to others, right? High quality connections has been shown to kind of ameliorate many of these feelings of isolation. The next thing I think is, again, not just be grateful, but also being kind to yourself. It is normal to ruminate, ah, I shoulda, coulda, woulda, this could have been much better. I should have done this to do better. And I myself go through this, right? Like I would go after a shift and I'd like drive home and I'll be ruminating about this thing. And for me, using the gratitude mantra again to switch back and say like, I'm really grateful that I got to make an impact on that patient. Or for instance, recently I had a cardiac arrest and did not go well. My patient uh, died in the end. But having that pause at the end and using that time to thank everybody in the team and reflecting on that human that just died in front of us and also reflecting on the humanity of what we just did. It doesn't take a lot of time, probably like two or three minutes of our time, just like spending that together. Because as you leave that trauma bay, you're going to get distracted with all the other things that you're going to be doing. So for me, that's one way in the moment on shift that you can do, especially after a bad outcome. Debriefing is very important to me. So whenever something is like not going so well, or even like celebrations, like a great resuscitation, I think it's very important to debrief because you may feel very happy, but you may not realize that one of the nurses or one of your residents or one of the medical students were significantly impacted by that experience. And being able to just connect with them after that moment, I think is very important. In the long term, like I said, residue keeps on building up and eventually like that leads to, I think, burnout and also like dissatisfaction with our work. Um, you got to find your priorities in life. And there's a book, Designing for Life, I believe, written here by people at the design school. And they talk about, so I mentioned earlier, work-life integration. You can also look at it in terms of gauges. So there's work and then life, you divide that into your health, your love. So like your connections with other people and then your play. And for me, I calendar those in my life. So if I'm going out on I don't know, like going to a spa or going on vacation, I find vacation as a way to really recalibrate my work and also refocus me. So I need vacation for myself. Some people hate vacation because that means like more work for them. But whatever makes you happy, you have to at least fill those gauges for yourself, your play gauge, your love gauge, and also your health gauge, eating healthy or whatever else that you want. Maybe eating fried chicken is like that one thing that will make you happy. Do that. But you have to at least like attend to those over time. And what I've learned, and I learned this from one of my colleagues and friends here, uh, Dr. Jennifer Kanapiki, is really putting that in my calendar. That's how that boundary setting earlier that I mentioned is important because I will put in time. Like if I know that I have a bunch of deadlines, I will also put in time for like going to a spa or going to have dinner with my friends and treat myself. And that's okay. And you have to be okay with that. You have to also just accept the fact that there are things that you will also prioritize outside of work. And you should not feel guilty about that. I think with the pandemic, people are so worried or even guilty or even shamed for taking vacations, whatever version of vacation that is. Like people would not talk about like they actually went outside and enjoyed life. Like since when was it not okay to talk about like I took time to actually take care of myself, right? That is unheard of. And yet here we are in the pandemic and that's what we're doing now. I am normalizing that, yes, I went on vacation and yeah, I still do all the necessary steps to make sure that I am safe and everybody else is safe. But also at the same time, I think that we have to normalize that we have to start taking care of ourselves. That's an excellent point. You know, the tip that you mentioned to put it on your calendar, if you want something personally, it's 
I felt that that's a very important aspect of prioritizing your personal work-life integration, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. I do the same exact thing. If I want to go to the gym, if I want to exercise, I find it's much easier to convince myself to go if it's on my calendar versus me just internally saying, you know what, on my next Tuesday morning off when I have an afternoon shift, I'll go to the gym. But come that Tuesday morning, I'm going to be like, you know what, I'm tired. I'm not going to go. But if it's on my calendar, it makes it much easier. And then essentially the same thing for anything personal, as you mentioned, the love gauge, for example, you know, like if I'm going on a nice little romantic dinner with my wife, we make it a priority that's on the calendar. We have something to look forward to. It's on there. So then you are ready for it. You can block everything else off around it. So for everyone, I think that's important to schedule your important tasks and your important aspects of your life that you have to obviously integrate within residency, within medical school, within attending Hood or Fellowship. So I definitely recommend people doing that as well. I was just going to say as well that if somebody asks you, hey, can we have a meeting at four o'clock or two o'clock, whenever that is, if your gym time or your dinner with your partner is going to be at XYZ, you can say, honestly, I have a meeting, right? You don't have to expand what that meeting is. I, I have an appointment because it's an appointment to yourself. And that is also as important as whatever else meeting that people are making for you. And the more that I do this, the more that I'm realizing that just like me, People also need to have their own priorities in life and that they are more willing to reschedule things when they realize like, oh, yeah, I need to also start taking care of myself. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Alvarez. This has been an incredible honor. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day with all your different meetings that you have, I'm sure. It was in my calendar, so so it's totally worth it. (laughs) Thank you so much. And for everyone who's been listening, I appreciate you guys for everything you do. Hopefully you listen to this podcast and walked away with some pearls that you can apply for your own wellness as well. Thank you so much for everyone for your attention. Thank you. Take care.